Welcome to Sense by Megfora, the podcast that's brought to you by ParentSense, the app that takes guesswork out of parenting. If you're a new parent, then you are in good company. Your host, Meg Fora, is a well-known OT, infant specialist, and the author of eight parenting books. Each week, we're going to spend time with new mums and dads just like you to chat about the week's wins, the challenges, and the questions of the moment. Subscribe to the podcast, download the Parent Sense app, and catch Meg here every week to make the most of that first year of your little one's life. And now, meet your host. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Sense by Meg Fora. I'm Bailey Georgiadis, a fellow mum and podcaster, and I'm here with OT author and entrepreneur Meg Fora to talk about something that I think we can all relate to. Today's topic is about the fourth trimester. And if you haven't heard that term before, we're talking about those first three months after your baby is born. Now, if you are a first-time mom, it is a huge transition phase. And whether it's your first, second, or third baby, it is such a time of adjustment. So Meg, we are all hoping that you can shed some light on the subject for us. It is a very complex emotional time for a lot of moms. And a lot of the times we don't even understand all the emotions because of the hormones thrown into it too. Most of us aren't getting enough sleep. Our bodies are changing. Our bodies are sore. And that little life that we've been growing in our wombs is now huge here. And then we realize we can't hand it back. Mm. So (laughs) it is really exciting and scary to say the least. And I, I cannot wait to dive into the subject with you. Now, don't forget, you also have a chance to ask Meg your baby and parenting questions. And just remember, there's no such thing as a stupid question. So look out for the posts on Meg Fora and ParentSense Facebook and Instagram and drop any of your questions in the comments. And as always, no topic is off limits. Meg is really here to support you in any way that she can. So Meg, shall we kick things off? Absolutely, Bailey. I'm loving these these monthly chats that you and I have that kind of are peppered in amongst my weekly chats with mums. So yeah, let's get started. And I'm loving following the journey on the podcast. So thank you. Let's start off by getting clear on a few things. First off, why do we call the three months after giving birth the fourth trimester? And then how does that differ from the honeymoon period? Yeah. So that's a good question. So, I mean, it's called the fourth trimester because it is three months and, you know, in the nine months of pregnancy, we have three trimesters, trimester one, where you have lots of nausea, you're getting used to being pregnant, trimester two, which is often the the glowing trimester where your um, symptoms have dropped and you're feeling fabulous. And then trimester three, which is just before birth, where you're preparing for birth. And then that's where people think pregnancy ends. But in actual fact, what happens in the next three months is critically important. What we know about the human baby is that they they're born less mature than almost any other mammal on earth. The only mammal mm. that's born less mature than us are marsupial, marsupial babies. So that's kangaroos and koala bears. And they actually go back into a pouch for, the, for another trimester. Yeah. And yeah, so our babies are the same. They're born very immature, um, unlike gazelles and springbok and, and lion cubs that can kind of get up and walk within a couple of hours after birth, human babies are very, very immature. And I think researchers believe that that has something to do with um, us needing to nurture them so that they can be socialized like human beings. There are other reasons as well. One of them is that the human baby's head is disproportionately large for the human mother's hips. And so if we had to keep them inside for another trimester to let them mature a little more, we actually wouldn't be able to give birth naturally through our, our, our pelvis. And mm. 
Mm. So there's reasons that are that the human baby is born so immature, really, and so so really early. And so when we talk about that fourth trimester, we're talking about a period of time in which a baby needs to take time to adjust to the world, and it's often quite a, a niggly period. So that's the opposite from what the honeymoon period is. Um, so the honeymoon period is actually the first two weeks after birth. So the first two weeks of the fourth trimester. And it's quite interesting because that's a period in which babies almost worldwide are very calm. That's why we call it the honeymoon period. They kind of let us in gently. Um, <laughs> and so they they really tend to sleep from one feed to the next during the day. They, so they can do like four hours between feeds and they're sleeping all the time. And often a mum will go, oh my goodness, I've got this waxed. I've got such an easy baby. <laughs> And I always say to them, listen, if it's in the in the honeymoon period, which is the first 10 to 14 days, don't shout too loud because yeah. <laughs> you, you never know what happens after that. I'm so, laughing because that was me. I was like, what is everyone complaining about? This is yeah. so easy. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly and then, day, 10, day 10 or day 14 hits and, and this little, little thing emerges, wakes up a little bit more, tends to not mm-hmm. sleep between feeds all the way. It's just a lot more niggly. And so then mums are kind of aware of the fact that they've entered this fourth trimester with this very immature a little one who needs a whole lot extra support. I think lots of new parents really only think about what life will be like when they get to hold their baby and have them be part of their world. But the reality is that a baby's experience starts before birth as they develop and even start to learn through the senses in utero. Can you give us some insight into what the world in the womb looks like? So this is a very important part of of a conversation around the fourth trimester, because one of the things that we know is that um, the reason the fourth trimester is so unsettled is that the baby's starting to deal with the sensory world outside of the womb. So it's busy and it's noisy and it's light and it's bright and it's, you know, the different tactile inputs. So all of that busyness of the sensory world outside of the womb is actually part of what contributes to babies being unsettled in that fourth trimester because they become so easily overstimulated. When people talk about things like colic, they often talk about, you know, digestive disturbances, but actually what we know is it's just really neurological immaturity, which comes along with this, this fourth trimester. So early on in my work, when I wrote Baby Sense, I started to actually talk about if we know that the world outside of the womb is overstimulating, then what we should really be doing is looking to this ideal womb space for what the fourth trimester should look like. And so I started to really look very deeply and did a lot of research into what actually goes on in utero for those nine months. Because if we use that as our foundation for what the perfect environment is for little ones, we can then extend that into the fourth trimester. So thinking about that, we started. I started to do a really deep dive into the, the development of the, of the fetus in utero. And um, there's some wonderful resources, a book by Lisa Elliott, is one of them called What's Going On In There. So if anybody's interested in this, this is a a really fabulous look at what goes on for the human infant in utero. But what's quite miraculous is that sensory development actually starts very, very early on in utero. So our first sense to start developing is the sense of touch. And amazingly, it actually starts to develop at only three weeks gestation. So this is before you even know that you're pregnant. This is before the brain is developed. So clearly it's not conscious, but the little nerves that will carry touch start to develop then already, which is absolutely amazing. And by 12 weeks gestation, so this just as you finish your first trimester of pregnancy, your baby can actually feel touch on their entire body and start to respond to this. And we know this because researchers have inserted little hairs down amniotic needles, hollow amniotic needles that are inserted into the amniotic sac and then tickled the baby with the hair. (sighs) 
and the baby oh. actually pulls away from it. So wow. it's quite amazing. So right from in utero, the baby actually perceives touch from the first trimester. I have no what idea it was so early. It's so early. And they start to learn through their sense of touch already. And, you know, we, we've often see our scans of our babies um, sucking their thumbs or mm. twins holding onto each other or playing with the umbilical cord. So they know touch and they love touch already in utero, but it's very specific touch. It's the, the kind of deep pressure of the womb world. And that becomes important later on when you start to think about calming your baby in the fourth trimester, because then you can use things like swaddling, which reenact that touch experience of the womb world. So that's an example of one of our senses. Another sense, and I'll just touch on a couple of them, another sense that, that begins to develop in utero is our auditory sense. And that is actually fully developed by 20 weeks gestation. And then by 23 weeks, it's actually starting to form connections through to the brain. And so we start to actually learn from language. And one of the absolutely miraculous things about babies is that they are born with already having learned a certain amount of uh, from their auditory world. And what, one of the things we know that they've learned is they've learned what their mother tongue sounds like. And so wow. it's quite amazing. So researchers have looked at whether or not a baby recognizes their mother tongue straight after birth. And, and the mother tongue obviously is the, the language that their mom or dad are speaking because they can actually hear it in utero. And we found that babies do recognize it. And so they become wired to learn language in the language that they actually heard in utero. So, and that's not to say that a child who's adopted and moves into a family who speaks a different language isn't going to learn that language, but it's just that in the very early days, they actually already have bedded down some learning. <laughs> so if we think about the sounds in utero, it's things like white noise, the sound of the shushing of your blood through your veins, of your digestion, of your heart heartbeat. Those are all the sounds that baby is used to in utero. And so understanding that we can then use that in the first trimester after birth, so the, or the fourth trimester to actually use white noise, to use the sound of heartbeat and that type of thing to calm babies. So you can see how developing into uterine space actually becomes very important when we start to speak about calming our babies or calming strategies for the fourth trimester. That is fascinating. And it's never even occurred to me that what's going on in the womb can actually be used to our advantage in the fourth trimester. So knowing what we know about the baby's world in utero, how can that help us calm our little ones after birth? So yeah, I mean, two of them, certainly the one is the sense of touch. I, I think that, you know, the uterine world is such an amazing space in terms of touch. There's nothing, there's nothing rough. There's no light touch. It's all deep touch, deep pressure, neutral warmth. That That's, that's what the baby's perceiving there. So something like swaddling is an example, which is a tool that I think is very important for the first trimester after birth or the fourth trimester. So swaddling your baby with their hands towards their face, because that's, remember, if you picture how a baby was swaddled by the, the womb, the hands are up yeah, towards their midline, towards their chest, towards their face. I'm literally doing it right yeah. now. And, and, you, and it is, and it's, yeah. it's calming, even as an adult, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> coming into the midline. I always I talk about the MMs, the mouth and the midline. So get your baby's hands towards their mouth and their midline. And so when you swaddle them, you're not straight jacketing them with their hands by their side and their hips straight. You're actually swaddling them up into the same ball that they were in in utero. And uh, um, babies who have that done in the first three months after birth are generally bit more generally calmer and they're generally better sleepers as well because it inhibits those little reflexes while they're sleeping. So that's an example of how we've taken the sense of touch and, and then used it afterwards. Obviously the sense of movement is another one. Uh, your sense of the, your sense of movement develops in the vestibular system, which is in the inner ear. So actually de develops parallel to your auditory system. So I said that your baby can can hear by 23 weeks. Well, by 23 weeks, your vestibular system's also working um, because it's in the inner ear. Now, the vestibular system in utero, you can think about what's happening there. Your baby's been rocked and lulled 
all day, every day as you move around. And a lot of moms will say that their babies actually sleep better when they're moving in the day than when they lie down at night. Then when, you know, mom, mom lies down and baby suddenly wakes up. So I'm um, using movement after birth is important. And that's why I love carriers and slings. You know, I'm, mm. I'm a big advocate for baby wearing because when you wear your baby, rather than push them in a pram, you end up giving them all that soothing all of the stuff that they had in utero that helped them to be a little be a little bit calmer, you can then use afterwards as well. And it makes so much sense because then you've got the touch, you've got them close to you, you've got mm. that feeling of being hugged, and they can hear your heartbeat. Exactly, Clever. exactly. Hmm. And there's, a, I mean, there's a carrier that I in particular like. It's called the Snuggle Roo Carrier, which is it's a soft fabric like those wrap carriers, except it hmm. doesn't have the terms of fabric that you have to wind around okay. your body, which I could never coordinate. <laughs> it just slips on over your head, but it's really soft, brings baby up towards your chest area, very close to your chest. Their ears flat against your chest so they can hear your heartbeat. And when they're newborns, that actually you actually curl their legs up inside it as well. So they really are like in a womb space. So I think, you know, using a carrier is very, very important in, in the months after your baby's born. Meg, you touched on it earlier, and I think most parents have heard the term mm -hmm. colic. For some, the word itself puts fear into our hearts. I know that so many moms and moms-to-be are terrified of colic. Mm. What is colic? And, and does it mean that there is something medically wrong with their baby? Mm. It's such a good question. And you're so right. I can remember somebody saying to me in the, in the hospital, because my firstborn was quite irritable in the hospital. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I think you're going to have a colicky one. And it was almost like she told me that he had a diagnosis of something. Yes. I was so terrified. <laughs> um, <laughs> so colic is nothing to be worried about. And Actually, it's a misnomer. The, what the word actually means, if you look it up, is abdominal discomfort. But in actual fact, it has nothing to do with the abdomen. But the fact that our little ones are pulling their feet up towards their tummy and kind of going purple with screaming makes us think that there's something going on digestively and ah. they've got a sore tummy, but they actually don't. So what colic is, first of all, it's incredibly common. It's defined as crying more than three hours of a day for more than three days in a week for more than three weeks at a stretch. And then there's a fourth three, which is under three months of age. That It's called the vessels rules of three that, that we talk about. So babies who are crying more than three hours a day are, are classified as having colic. I prefer to call it early infant crying because I don't like the misnomer. Now, the reason why babies develop colic has to do with the sensory world. It has to do with the fact that they have been in this ideal sensory space are then born into a very busy, noisy sensory environment and then become overstimulated. That is one of the reasons why colic happens in the evening. So, you know, one of the reasons why we know that it's not just to do with abdominal discomfort is that if it was, it could happen at any time of the day. Mm. But the reality is that for nine out of 10 babies who develop colic, it happens between five and eight in the evening. Like it has a very specific time of day. And this is based on research that's been done worldwide, you know, in urban areas in North America, as well as in rural areas in South Africa and the Kalahari, for instance, they did some research. So babies worldwide cry more in the late part of the afternoon if they're less than three months of age. So it's quite a classic thing. It has to do with overstimulation. It has to do with the fact that they just haven't had a chance to adjust to the world. And so their brains have ta are taking in too much information and then, you know, re result in an overstimulated state. What often happens is that when we respond to them in the state, we actually make it worse. So what we do is we immediately think, oh, maybe they're hungry. So we refeed. And then we think, oh, mm. maybe, maybe they need to burp. So we burp them. And then we think, oh, maybe their nappy's dirty. So we unchange, we take them off their clothes, we change them, we put the nappy back on. And so we do the cycle. And you can just see in each of those interactions, whether it is feeding, burping, or changing a nappy, you're actually 
doing more and more stimulation. And so we yeah. end up in this vicious cycle of doing more and more, messing with them, passing them from person to person, pacing the corridors, going to watch TV with them on our laps or whatever it is. And so we actually overstimulate them further. And so the secret to short-circuiting colic is actually the opposite of all of that. This episode is brought to you by ParentSense, your parenting app. As an avid user, I can safely say that ParentSense is the all-in-one baby development app that helps mums and dads keep track of their baby's routines and really takes the guesswork out of parenting in the first year of a baby's life. Meg, tell us what makes ParentSense so special. So ParentSense is my love child. I developed it because I felt that parents needed a little manual in their pockets. And that's what it is. It gives parents routines for their baby's day. They flexible routines for sleep and for feeding. And then it also gives them a play activity for every single day, 365 for the first year of life, as well as recipes and meal plans. So it really, unlike most other apps, it covers absolutely every aspect of early parenting. There, you heard it straight from the expert. Download ParentSense app now from your app store. Sign up for a lifetime subscription on the website, parentsense.app, and take 50% off when you use the discount code parentpod at checkout. Take advantage of this incredible offer. It's exclusive to podcast listeners. Download the app now and take the guesswork out of parenting. All right. So then with that in mind, how do colic and reflux differ? Yeah, another great question. So reflux is otherwise known as GERD or G-E-R-D, gastroesophageal reflux, which is where milk curds come up from the, uh, from the tummy, up the esophagus and into the mouth usually. And actually many babies have reflux, uh, many, many babies. But it's very important to kind of separate between reflux that is pathological and reflux that is actually nothing to worry about. So the difference is you're, you get many babies who are what we call happy pukers. So they kind of bring up milk curds and they might even posit it right out. They might even actually projectile vomit it out, but they're quite happy nice. afterwards. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> they're quite happy afterwards. They might even swallow it back down. And you'll, mm. you'll notice with some babies that you can, they kind of take a breath, open their eyes, swallow it, and then they continue on with their day. Okay. And they're generally called happy pukers and they they have reflux, but it's not a problem. Then you get a batch of babies who've got reflux and it's a problem for them because as it comes up, it burns their esophagus oh. a little bit. And, or even if it doesn't, they're just sensitive to it. And then it makes them fussy and cry and gives them very short sleep cycles. So for those babies who sleep in kind of 20 minutes day and night, they often do have reflux that's bothering them. And that's sometimes not because the reflux is a problem, but because the baby's just oversensitive. And so that's another type of reflux. Again, not a pathological type of reflux, Reflex, but it's a tr tricky one. It's a gray area. Babies are, you know, kind of irritable with it. Doesn't really need to be treated because they are still gaining weight. But, you know, it's just more of a niggle factor than anything until it passes. And then you get pathological reflux, which is really dangerous for babies. Those babies don't gain weight. They projectile vomit and bring up more than they actually take in. So they have weight gain issues. And they also may have lung issues because they start to aspirate on the, on the vomit. So it comes up, the posit comes up, they breathe it in and it causes lung infections. Oh, and in shit. both of those two situations, recurrent lung infections or lack of weight gain, then you really do need to seek medical attention because those are the circumstances where it is pathological. So when we talk about colic versus reflux, for, you know, if, if you've got pathological reflux, it's a completely different condition needs to be dealt with medically. Um, right. Often with our colicky babies, they're also experiencing some reflux because being colicky is associated with being more sensitive. 
and over-responding to non-pathological reflux is also associated with over-responding okay. to sensory information. So they kind of end up falling in a bucket where a mom is going, well, I don't know, what is it? Is it colic? Is mm. it reflux? What I always say to moms is don't worry about the label, obviously, unless it's pathological, but otherwise don't worry about the label, just treat the symptoms, just treat what's going on. And so if it's colic, the treatment of what's going on is to make the world less overstimulating and use your world of your womb as part of your principles. And then if it is a reflux, it's irritating them, elevate the head of the cot so that they don't bring up as much. You might want to thicken their feeds if they're on formula or on, on express breast milk. You know, so there are kind of symptomatic uh, management of both colic and reflux that you would go for. Are some babies more susceptible to colic? Yes, definitely. So our sensory personalities are more sensitive. And, and for those of people who've been following our podcast, they would have heard you on my episode last month was on those sensory personalities. And the sensory personalities who are more sensitive and also slow to warm up tend to over-respond to sensory information and become more overstimulated. But having said that, it doesn't necessarily work the other way. In other words, if a baby has colic, it doesn't necessarily mean they are a sensitive baby because colic can just be outgrown. Mm. There are also environmental factors that can increase colic. Like for instance, a chaotic household, a household with absolutely no routines and rhythms and not prioritizing sleep, being overstimulating, a mom who just really, really doesn't look after herself and her baby's interests in the first few months and goes out a lot and is very social and challenges herself too much. They can also have more niggly babies because they're not giving themselves or their babies time to adjust in the new world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this fourth trimester is such a critical period for bonding, but it's also such a critical period for, for you to just, just taking it easy and just giving your baby, you know, the space to develop a little bit more slowly, more similar to the womb world. We always focus on the baby, but we forget that mom also needs just as much focus. I remember seeing somewhere where they said, it's not just your baby being born, it's you being reborn. You're being born into being a mother, whether that's first time, second time, third time round. And you really have to be gentle with yourself. There's no, I mean, we, we always go, 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 go all the time. Mm-hmm. Take this fourth trimester and just bond. Exactly. That is the piece of advice I wish I had gotten sooner that I was able to do second time round and I didn't do first time round, but I think it is just so important. And I I wish moms would be more gentle with themselves. So Meg, I am fascinated by this topic. I'm learning so much with this. Let's talk about the calming ways that we can create for our baby so that they feel as safe as they were in the womb. I know you've spoken about the seven S's of calming before. Hmm. Yeah. So the seven S's of of calming, it was really just coming up with something that moms could remember it by so that they knew how to soothe their babies. And I'll go through them. And the first S is for sucking. We know that there are more sensory receptors around our mouth and our neck than actually anywhere else on our our bodies. And so babies derive a lot of comfort from their mouth. So letting your baby suck is important. And, you know, I think sometimes um, you hear these terrible, these terrible pieces of advice where somebody's told, don't let your baby suck a dummy, don't let them suck their thumb, and they mustn't have unrestrained access to your breast. And then I'm like, okay, well, what are they supposed to do then? Because they want to suck. What can they suck on? So I love sucking. I don't mind which way it happens. It's a personal choice for moms, which, which route they take dummies or pacifiers versus thumbs have pros and cons. There's also pros and cons to unrestrained breastfeeding as well. So, you know, it each, each has pros and cons, but just allow your baby to suck is the first one. 
The second S we've mentioned, which is swaddling, um, mm. it reenacts that womb world, that tight space. The third S is sounds, and sounds of the, the womb world is what you're looking for. So things like white noise, the sound of a heartbeat. I mean, they found that a metronome played at 72 beats per minute helps to calm babies in the neonatal ICU as an example. Now, 72 wow. beats per minute is approximately what the average heart rate is. So babies are calmed by sounds that they heard in, in utero. So that's the, that's the third one. The fourth one is slings and carriers. So popping a baby into a carrier. I mentioned the snuggle root carrier, which I absolutely love, but there are millions of other carriers out there that really do help little ones to soothe just by being on your body. The fifth one is soothing touch. So that's things like massage and massage is wonderful because as you give that deep pressure, you're giving them all that wonderful proprioception that they received in utero. And so that serves to calm them. The sixth one is the sensory load. So watch what's going on. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this, that, you know, slow things down, go at their pace, don't overschedule them, don't overschedule yourself and watch that sensory world. You know, if your baby's been lying under a mobile for the last 15 minutes and is starting to grizzle, well, that's probably as long as they could stay calm yeah. for. And so, you know, just watching their sensory load. And then the seventh one, seventh S is to stick with one thing for five minutes. So, you know, you want to just slow down and don't swaddle, feed, change nappy, jiggle, you know, do all of these things quickly like that. Babies actually need to take time to actually just adjust, you know, so when, when they're swaddled and they're still niggling, give them five minutes in the swaddle and then decide whether or not you're going to unswaddle them. So just slowing down is, is the seventh one. I love the seven S's of calming. It's so great. And I mean, having done it myself, I can say that caring for a newborn is one of the scariest, most overwhelming, most wonderful, but most confusing things I've ever done. It really is the hardest thing. And mm. for me personally, when I thought that I had one thing nailed yep. and I was like, yes, super mom, <laughs> everything would go and change. And I'd be like, exactly. what? Back to square one. What is going on? <laughs> and you try and look for the patterns. It's so funny because in my sessions with Cassidy, who the mom who I'm interview yes. weekly that's come up that she just gets it right and then it changes and it's yeah I mean it really is a very confusing time for mom and for baby so let's talk about what is vital for newborns yeah so I look I think a couple of things the first thing is their basic needs need to be taken care of so uh, you know the basic needs are things like feeding and nutrition I mean that, that that's really really important is that baby's basic needs are taken care of and that's a no-brainer but after that I think there really are three things that are very important for the newborn to develop the one is adequate sleep and we know that you know that when when babies and humans sleep it actually is really healing for the brain and serves a very important purpose for learning. It also prevents babies from becoming overstimulated. And that's why in the Parent Sense app, we talk about the 45 minute awake time because for, for newborns, because that's how long babies can be awake at that age. And if you put them back down every 45 minutes after they've woken up, they'll actually be a whole lot calmer and, and you could avoid colic altogether as an example. So mm. sleep is critical. The second thing that I would say is absolutely critical is, is being calm. And that comes to us as parents to really take every single tool we can to make sure that little ones can be calm, to, to work to keep them calm is important. And then the third thing is engagement or relationship. And that's the falling in love piece, because what happens in the first six weeks does to an extent wire our babies for social engagement and for relationships later. So engagement and just being with your little one and making eye contact is so critically important. So across those three areas, the sleep, the calming and the relationship, I would say those are critical for newborns. Beautiful. Now, what about prem babies? I know lots of moms are dying to know how this all applies to their little ones who are in a big hurry to get into the wide world. 
Yeah, so prem babies are they they're born before their senses are ready, much more than our other babies. So if, you know, if you think I was talking about the fourth trimester, that you know babies were born on a neurologically immature, you can imagine that they're mm-hmm. actually born in the third trimester. They're even more neurologically immature, and there's very very important sensory information that happens in the third trimester that they just miss out on then, and so there becomes two aspects to the care of a prem baby. The one is obviously their basic needs and their and their kind of medical the, the medical side, which I'm not going to talk about, mm-hmm. and that generally I've always said to mums, I wrote a book on, you know, that had, I've written two books with chapters on prem babies. And they always say, you know, default to whatever your neonatal ICU or SCABU is telling you to do. But the other piece is the sensory developmental care. And that's taking care of their senses as if they were still in utero. And that's also critically important for, for prem babies. So it's things like positioning them so that they've got a little bit more flexion, a little bit more curled up like they were in the womb, making sure that the neonatal ICU is a quiet space. You know, often people put a bottle down on top of the of the isolator, on top of the incubator. And that's like putting a you know hitting the outside of a box for the baby. You know, they they hear the the noise and at much, much higher decibels than they should. Um, dimming the lights is also very important. And of course, we now know that it actually is very important because it can create blindness, never mind overstimulation. And then using really soft fabrics and very importantly, through the sense of touch, using kangaroo mother care. And in one of the upcoming episodes, I'm going to be talking to um, Kirsty Williams, who's a physiotherapist who's just had a baby. She works in the neonatal ICU at Mowbray Maternity Hospital. And we talk about kangaroo mother care, putting a neonat and a prem baby against your naked chest. So these are the type of things that are very important. Ultimately, what you should be doing is looking at the womb world and saying what goes on in utero and how can I make that happen for my baby while they, for my prem baby while they're in the neonatal ICU. Hmm. So, so important. And I suppose we can, depending obviously medically, but you can go back to those seven S's. Exactly. And that's that's the principle. So when I wrote the book, it was in the Baby Sense Secret, which was one of the books that I read, that I wrote a couple of years ago. It's published by Dolan Kindersley. And in that book, that's exactly what we said. Go back to the seven S's and let's put it in place in the neonatal ICU. Phenomenal. As always, we love hearing from our parents and you are welcome to send your comments and your questions. Meg loves to be able to give you as much advice as she can. This is a question that came in from Abigail. She's a new mom to Riley who is nine weeks old. Congratulations. And she wants to know how to prevent the witching hour. Every night, Riley cries from bath time to 8 p.m. Why does this happen and what can she do to prevent it? Yeah, so this is that classic colic time, you know, that kind of early infant crying. As I mentioned, you know, between 5 and 8 p.m., it's just so classic. So she's going through something that's really classic. So a couple of things I want to say. First of all, just to normalize it for Abigail and other moms who are listening, is that this classically starts at two weeks. It escalates till about six weeks. Most infants crying in the early evening peaks at six weeks and then it decreases until 12 weeks. So she's only got about three weeks left of it. And most babies really turn the corner at 12 weeks old and are much, much calmer. So so that's the first thing. It is limited. Second thing is to prevent it is I would definitely look at your day routine. So on the Parent Sense app, you'll be able to see that it's every 45 minutes. It's only a 45 minute awake time. By nine weeks, it's actually have, has lengthened to about an hour. And the app will tell you when to put your little one down. And if you watch that and put your little one down when they should be going down, you can probably avert early infant crying or early evening crying almost entirely. So, so that would be a preventative measure. Another preventative measure would be in that late part of the afternoon, early evening, just do less. 
Yes. So don't do a bath. You know, a lot of parents think they must bath their baby every day. But if you've got a colicky baby, first of all, babies are clean. And second of all, they really don't need to be washed daily and it can overstimulate them. So stop with the bath time. And so what I would be doing is I would say, right, we're going to be having bedtime at 6.30, um, which would be an appropriate bedtime for this baby, for a baby this age. So she must be awake from her last sleep of the day by 5.30 so that you've got an hour to top and tail her, do her uh, feed and then go into all of those seven S's, deep swaddling, a little bit of massage maybe, use your, your calming sounds like your white noise and really create a very calm space and then put your little one down. So all of that up until this point in my answer is all preventative. Hmm. But let's just say that none of this has worked and she's now ramped into a full-blown cry. Then a couple of things. First of all, less is more. So don't try and feed, burp, change, da 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 Don't do all of that. Just do less. Second thing is swaddle her for the last part of the feed. Put her down with your hand on her and leave your hand on her until she settles. And then often they'll actually settle. So they often cry a little bit in that position. But by letting them cry a little bit in that position with you sitting with them, with your hands near them, they actually do less crying than if you pick them up and walk around with them. So try that as your hmm. next line of defense and do it for five minutes. If she's still crying after five minutes, pick her up. I often do a cluster feed, just one extra feed at this time of day. So offer her one more side if you're breastfeeding or a little bit more 60 mils of milk, whatever, tiny, but a little bit more milk, even less. And then re-swaddle and down again. So you do the whole thing again, but slowly. So five minutes with your hand on her till she settles. And if you've done that and she's still not settled, then my advice is to put her into a carrier and pace the floor with her. And the reason for that is that in, in a sling or in a carrier, you're not messing with your baby. You're not changing her position. She's in the same position. And so she'll actually just fall asleep in that position, hopefully. And then you can put her down and don't worry about habits at this age because mm. they're still too little for that. And, and usually by going through those three steps. So first of all, a calming bedtime, second of all, doing the whole thing once more. And then thirdly, putting her into a carrier and pacing that usually short circuited and you won't then be dealing with three hours of crying, but maybe only 20 minutes. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. Good luck, Abigail. Three weeks to go and hopefully it gets easier. And thank you so, so much, Meg. I have learned so much. I know that the mums and dads listening have too. Mm. And the fourth trimester now doesn't sound so scary. So thank you as always for your incredible knowledge. Thank you, Bailey. It's been lovely to be on with you today. This episode is brought to us by ParentSense, the app that takes the guesswork out of parenting. Get a flexible routine, tips and advice about feeding, weaning, sleep and development personalized for you and your little one. It's the all-in-one baby and parenting app that helps you make the most out of the first 12 months of your precious baby's life. Download ParentSense app now from your app store. Sign up for a lifetime subscription and take 50% off. Use the discount code ParentPod at checkout and take advantage of this incredible offer exclusive to podcast listeners. Download the app now and take the guesswork out of parenting. Thanks to everyone who joined us. We will see you the same time next week.